FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're very glad to have you with us uh, for our Wednesday edition of the show. We've got a very special guest who we'll talk to in just a minute. Uh, before we get to him, let me remind you that you can watch us live in the studio if you're in a place where you can uh, do that on uh, Facebook Live. Just go to the GPB news page on Facebook. You'll find us there. We also love it when you leave your comments on Facebook Live. Everybody on our team loves to read what all of you are saying as you talk to each other in that community about the show. And you can tweet us at politicsgpb. Uh, Greg Bluestein, political reporter at the AJC, is in the studio with us, as he is every Wednesday. Later in the show, we're going to talk about the fact you're just back from Nashville. I just got in 20 minutes ago. Saw Stacey Abrams outside of Georgia, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. Heath Garrett. Republican strategist who is with us regularly on the show is here. How you doing, Heath? Great to be here on a Wednesday with uh, Senator Isaacson. That's right. Sitting right next to you, the senior senator from the state of Georgia, Johnny Isaacson, now serving your third term. I think you're the first Georgia Republican to win a third term in, in uh, the in, United in the States Senate. Senate. That's correct, yes, sir. Chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee, chairman of the Ethics Committee. Right. You're also, I think, the only member of the Senate to be the chair of two committees. Is that right as well? That's correct. Wow, you're a big deal. I've been very fortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Senator, um, we want to start by talking about the tweet storm that President Trump set out over the weekend, went into early hours at the beginning of the week. Um, You've made it pretty clear. Uh, You you talked to uh, a reporter at uh, The Bulwark, an online news organization, And you told her that you are upset, disturbed about the way in which President Trump has characterized John McCain with his tweets, with some comments he made to reporters at the White House at the beginning of this week. Um, Tell us what you're feeling today. I don't think we have to relive what the president has has been saying about McCain. It has been uh, very tough, tough critical language. Well, the, what should endure from this is uh, in the future we don't have something that happen like that again. I I, uh, I made a speech on the, at the end of August when John McCain was lying in repose before he was uh, buried on the floor of the United States Senate because in Washington some of the flags got lowered and we got raised from half staff before the morning period was over, and I thought that was an insult. To the him. White House initially did not even lower their That's flag correct. to half staff. When it was called to their attention, they lowered it, but within 24 hours put it back to full staff. And when I made the speech I made that I'm referring to, they sent me a congressional message while I was in the well of the House, of the Senate, telling me they put it back up. So they were aware of it. <clears throat> it, it I got concerned as, as chairman of the Veterans Committee, as one who remembers the Vietnam War and what it this had the country got so torn up as one who sees the millions almost of men that have now been deployed overseas in the uh, enduring freedom and the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. <clears throat> and undoubtedly the people will have to deploy in the future. I want to be crystal clear that we need to talk with the politics of the military any way we want to, but we don't talk about our veterans anyway, but to brag on them for the service they render the job that they do. So how do you characterize the way <coughs> President Trump was talking about Senator McCain, and what do you think it says about the president? <coughs> I pardon you for the. I pardon me for the call. I'm sorry. It's deplorable what he said. Uh, I, I, that's what I called it from the floor of the Senate uh, seven months ago. <coughs> it will be deplorable, deplorable seven months from now if he says it again, and I will continue to speak out because there's one thing that we've got to do. You may not like immigration. You may not like this. You may not like that. that you may be a Republican. You may not be a Democrat. We're all Americans. There aren't Amer- uh, Democrat casualties and Republican casualties, casualties on the battlefield. There are American casualties. And we should never reduce the service that people give to this country, including the offering of their own life, to anything but political fodder in, in Washington, D.C., or anywhere else for that matter. Uh, Senator, do you worry <coughs> overall that these disparaging words erode our nation's reverence for the men and women who, who risk their lives in battle? Well, there's no question, Greg, that uh, there are those that uh, don't think well, very well of the military, but that's a minority. 
but anybody that thinks doesn't think well of it's not a good thing to have. We 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 have such a great, you know. I've traveled to Afghanistan and Iraq and other places around the world, <coughs> and been with our soldiers. Excuse me again. I'm sorry about the cough. And we have young men and women qualified to do anything in the world on their own, then on their own volunteer and serve this country. One named Noah Harris, who died in, uh, two, in 2012, used to sign all his emails to me from Baghdad, I-D-W-I-C, I do what I can. That was his slogan, his units, what they did. These young people are 22, 23 years old. They're fighting in battles in lands far away. They're fighting for everything we believe in and we love in this country. Your ability to be have the free press, my ability to assemble people and talk about the issues. And it's just the most important thing we've got. So when it comes up, as chairman of the Veterans Committee, I'm going to stand up for veterans. As an American, I'm going to stand up for your right, Greg, to write anything you want to write, and Bill can say anything he wants to about it. But so can I. And out of that's going to come the great decisions this country makes in the legislative process that leads us to greater things in the future. So, Senator, it's more than just uh, John McCain you're really implying here. And I'm curious how you looked at the entire body of the dozens of tweets that the president sent out over the weekend, um, really uh, taking shots at just about everything he could incite. There are those who think it's time to assess whether President Trump has some issues with stability. Do you think that's an unfair question to yes. raise? I think it is, and I'm not going to get into that discussion here because I don't think it's a discussion. The president, I respect the, president, the presidency of the United States regardless of who the president is, and that's the way I wish everybody would be. But it's an individual. I, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. And I hope everybody that's an American citizen will respect the United States military and those who serve for what they do for us. So I respect the president and the presidency, and I respect the American military, and I'm going to continue to fight for both, and we'll always be that way. Let me ask you this way. Um, you're the most, uh, your, your, your defense was the most forceful among Republican senators, with maybe the exception of Senator uh, Romney. What do you make of many of your colleagues not saying, not echoing your, your comments about Senator McCain? Well, I, I subscribe to the belief that the weight of my words is directly proportionate to how few I use. So if you use a whole lot of words, people shouldn't pay much attention to you. And I'm not a big word user, but I am on this one because it's important to me, and I hope my other, other members will say what they think when they think it's appropriate and the way they think it's appropriate to do so. But I'm the one that had laid the mantle down on, in August of last year. I'm the one that had already said it. Uh, the president that last weekend breached it again and again stated his dislike for John McCain and lack of, lack of respect, I would say, is the right word, for his service. And uh, I just don't think that's appropriate. Senator, uh, within the past hour, I believe, uh, um, your leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, sent out a tweet. I want to read it right now. His tweet said, Today and every day I miss my good friend John McCain. It was a blessing to serve alongside a rare patriot and genuine American hero in the Senate. His memory continues to remind me every day that our nation is sustained by the sacrifices of our heroes. Did you and um, the leader talk about the comments you wanted to make about John McCain and did you encourage each other to say something to support uh, McCain's memory? No, sir. In fact, uh, and you can check this out because it's ironic. I had dinner with Mitch McConnell last night at a great restaurant in Atlanta, a new place um, out near a, a local three. And uh, we talked. I, I knew what I had said earlier in the day and I, that I was going to be on this show today, but I did not tell him about it because it hadn't happened yet. But it was happening much to my surprise, really, uh, in Washington last night. So I did not talk to him about it. I mean, what I had said was already known. I didn't say anything new. I was as forceful as I was before, maybe a little bit more forceful about it. Mitch is a, let me tell you something. Mitch McConnell and I are two of the 97 members of the Congress that have served in the military. Mitch has been a great leader and a great example throughout his life, and I admire him for it, and I appreciate his leadership, and I appreciate what he said about John, and he's 100% right. Greg, it does feel as though this tweet coming before our show went on the air, the, the Senator Isaacson's uh, office had made it clear he was going to come on and talk about this. To some extent, 
the majority leader is, is uh, offering his support and cover for Senator Isaacson on being somewhat critical of uh, the president on the tweets. It does. Um, and I, but I want to also ask you about what a Senate minority leader, Chuck Schumer, said said today, because he said he'd soon introduce reintroduce the bill to name the Russell Senate office building after Senator McCain. This is a touchy issue in Georgia, of course, because Senator Russell is a longtime veteran Georgia lawmaker. How do you feel about that legislation? To quote Zell Miller, I'll think about that when they take the Washington name off the Washington Monument and Jefferson's name off the Jefferson Memorial. Both of them had practices in their life that were, to Chuck Schumer, as bad as the practices of Richard Russell may have been. I didn't think they were he was a bad man at all, but whatever the point, they're great people in history, and in their time and in their place, they accomplished things nobody had ever done to create a great republic like this, and they sacrificed their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Chuck Schumer's just playing politics. I'll stand up and fight for the legacy and the right of Richard Russell to do what he did and for the people of Georgia to have the, the people of the United States have that building named after him. So, so how should the Senate honor Senator McCain? I think that—well, I don't think. I know. There is a, I know Cindy, his wife, whom, whom I know, and, and some of his kids and other friends are on a, are putting, have put together a group that is considering how they how we will what they're going to recommend to be done to honor him, and I'm going to pay attention to what they recommend and what they offer. So, Senator, that's, that's who should be doing it. Senator, um, you know as well as anyone that there are Republicans out there who, and some of them are, are your colleagues, I, I presume, who support the president's policies. They think he's done a good job uh, with the economy. They like the fact that he's de- doing a lot of deregulation in areas where President Obama had, in, had put more regulations in place. There are the Supreme Court... Uh, uh, justices that he's now put in place, two of them. And and so they see that and they say, good, we're getting what we want out of President Trump to some extent. And in doing that, they overlook the character and the tenor of the person in the White House and the um, way in which his words and actions reflect a different perspective on what Americans stand for. How do you parse those two things? Well, I don't, first of all. I respect the office, and I always will, whomever is in it. And I think the Democrats should respect Republicans and Republicans, Democrats. That's number one. Number two, the issue. I've always been an issues guy. You've known me for 41 years in public life. I've always been an issues guy. I've never taken the bait to get down low and just fight in the gutter because it doesn't do any good. Zell Miller was also right when he said you won't find most Georgians on the far left or the far right. You find them in Walmart. They want a good price and a fair deal. <laughs> and he was right. So that's the way I feel about it, always have felt, and that's the way I feel about it now. But, but, but is the president setting a tone and a tenor for this country? It should, is he a role model for our children? Uh, is he encouraging people to be meaner in spirit, meaner in language? How do you deal with that aspect of his presidency? Well, like some other presidents, um, Bill Clinton was one, who've done some things while they were in office that caused a change in what we talked about at the dinner table or how we talked about people, it's a damaging situation. I, if my kids started talking about John McCain, my, John McCain was not a hero or because he was a prisoner of war didn't make any difference or things like that, I, I, they'd have a serious conversation with me, and I would have it with them. And you said, you said during your 2016 run things like this. You said that um, you're not going to be held accountable for Trump tweets and you weren't going to comment on them, but you you were you were critical of some of them. But by my count, this is the fourth time since his election that you've 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 criticized Trump openly. Do you worry about uh, some of your legislative priorities being vulnerable because of this? I never worry about uh, what I'm doing politically or practically in the Senate as long as I think I'm doing what's right. You know, Mark Twain once wrote, when you're confronted with a difficult decision, you do what's right, you appease a few and you'll amaze the rest. We're a tough time. we got we got to do the right thing to do. And some of them aren't popular. But um, it wasn't popular for me to vote against my party when we ended the shutdown two weeks ago, but I did because it was the right thing to do. I supported the wall on, and have consistently on the border because it's the right thing to do, and I'll continue to do so. Hopefully my epitaph will say... He only hoped the weight of his words would be just by how few he did 
that he always worked for the best interest of the people. As long as that's the case, I'm happy. So, Senator, let me ask you about a couple of other subjects in the in the news that are important for us to discuss with you. Uh, you, uh, 12 of your colleagues in the Senate uh, voted to overturn the president's emergency order, which he believes establishes his right to send money for the, the wall. Uh, you uh, stuck with the president. You voted against that resolution. Uh, so I've really typed kind of two questions based on that. Why did you decide to stick with him on that? Were you at all concerned about whether the president is expanding executive powers in an inappropriate way? But more specifically to Georgia, we've now seen a list from the Pentagon which suggests that 260 plus million dollars of military projects in Georgia could be right. taken to help pay for the wall. It kind of reminds me of BRAC, mini BRAC all over again. Well, that's the, the, those eight items are a classic trial, trial balloon. They're designed to raise questions and concerns, but they're not necessarily factual. They are factual in that those are pending things like the tower at the, the field at Columbus and the one at Moody and some of the others. Well, the cyber center the in cyber Augusta center is and, an enormous and you know, project. Well, you know, the country has invested billions in cyber in Augusta, Georgia. The state is and the governor deal have invested billions, millions. In Augusta and cyber, we're not going to cut cyber because it's it's the weak link to the future of the 21st century in terms of national security. So that that's but we'll deal with those as they come along. We got until the end of September. That's a long time in politics. It's a, it's a eternity in politics. Why did you decide to stick with the president on that vote? Because it's the right thing to do. I mean, you know, I I, I was one of the first people in Congress to go to the, to uh, uh, Yuma, Arizona, and Fort Huachuca. In 2000 and, uh, 2003, and myself and a unit from the Tennessee National Guard, I was in the Georgia National Guard, with the Georgia National Guard at the time, welded the wall at Yuma, Arizona that causes the throughput to have to go through in a narrow band of people coming through. It used to, it was just flat, and they could walk in. So you couldn't manage it. Now, it's this 20-foot parallel walls that they walk through, and then they have certain exits they can get out of, and when they do, they get out of it in front of a Border Patrol officer who then takes them through the system. So the wall is about controlling the traffic. And right now, if you watch TV, every network is putting pictures of all the people who are trying to surge into the country where there's no way to stop them early on. And then once they get in the country, they dissipate throughout. So it's the right thing to do. But a lot of the criticism is over giving the president this this enormous new authority to do That's so. That's a legitimate question, too. Rather than going through the legislative process. So, so you know, given that, why did you vote the way you did? Well, first of all, uh, every pre the last six presidents have done it, so the Republican and Democrat. I think it's six. Um, it's been done 72 times, I believe is the right number. And so why should I go down and make a philosophical argument over whether it's right and wrong or constitutionally or, or Article One or Article Two in the Constitution? When, in fact, we've got a legitimate problem, which everybody recognizes to one degree or another in terms of the border, and is as fixable as it will ever be, not that I mean it's totally fixed, but it's as fixable as it'll ever be now. If we go much longer, we'll have, we will have lost the war in the, in the long run and the short run, and that's a bad thing for the country. Senator, has, as you research how many times a president has declared a national emergency, are you confident that other presidents have used that power to assume a budgetary, to overturn a budgetary decision by the Congress? I, I, I can't, I, I don't know, and I hadn't made okay. an assumption. Okay, so so let me ask you a different question. You have been, you have been fighting a battle, along with your junior senator up there, David Perdue, you've been fighting hard for Georgia farmers ever since before the shutdown. The emergency money that was supposed to be, uh, we thought, was coming down the pike to help them recover from Hurricane Michael got hung up in the shutdown. It didn't get added to the continuing resolution. You've been pushing hard for this. Do you have any news for us? Where do you stand on getting some money to help the people of rural Georgia down there? Well, I've been standing on my head. That's what I've been doing, <laughs> trying to trying to get everybody's attention because we've we've only got uh, 11 more days. By the, if If March goes— we haven't got that worked out. We're dead. I mean, crops have seasons. You have to pick them. You have to clean them. You have to ship them. You have to do all that. You just run out of time. And we're in the, the 24-second clock on, on trade for Georgia and agriculture. is run 21% of our economy. We're as close as we have been, and I think we got the deal. I said, I think we've got the deal. So when you call me after this, this meeting and we lose the deal, so you said, I said, I said, I thought we had it. <laughs> I thought we had it. And I think I'll tell you what it is. We've, we've taken the biggest stumbling block, which was Puerto Rico. I worked with President uh, Trump 
two weeks ago on Saturday at the White House to get him to agree to a level of funding for Puerto Rico that was not what they wanted, but was was what they needed in, in our judgment. And um, we uh, got three few other items, a CDBG definition to free up the use of some money, not to take it from somebody, but to free up. Yet you authorize and you appropriate. And th- it was authorized, but not appropriate. So we had to get it authorized. I was down appropriated. Um, uh, Senator, I was down in Tifton not that long ago um, for the event yeah. you spoke at. And I interviewed farmers beforehand and afterwards. And the word that kept on coming up over and over again was chaos. That, that it, it's it, chaos. Well, the problem is all the notes are coming due at the banks. And uh, the equipment dealers... The Caterpillar, they don't know what to do. And the, the farmers are, ca- that's a cash flow business. There are a lot of rich farmers, but there are a whole lot more day-to-day hand-to-mouth farmers than our rich ones. So you got you got to understand it is a crisis. Well, with the state's leadership, state and federal unified behind this, why did it take so long to get to where we are now? People. You know, in the end, it's how you get people to work, causing people to act in a unified fashion. We had, everybody had little fights they were working on, so I'll get to that later because everybody thought it was going to get done. And then we, had the terrible surprise come to us where twice, when we had it put on appropriation bills at the end, it got pulled off in negotiations at the end by people who didn't care about Georgia. We got Marco Rubio in Florida, to, who's a super guy to go to work with his folks. So Alabama did, South Carolina did, North Carolina did, and we finally got the message to the right number of people. I talked to Nancy Pelosi, and I talked to the, the uh, Republican leader of, this, of the House, we, uh, we did everything we could, and we've been doing everything we can. And by the midnight on the end of this month, we're going to have that passed into the House for them to adopt our version that I'm talking about now so that we can begin dispensing that money on April the 1st, which is not going to be April Fool's Day. It's going to be Georgia Forever Day because we're going to solve the ag problem. <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. S- Senator, um, you served your first—you were now three terms in— so you started in the United States Senate some 18 years ago. Um, how has the tenor of the partisanship uh, changed in your time there? I suspect, in fact, I know that 17 or so years ago, you and your Democratic colleagues could work together. You could pass bipartisan legislation. Uh, you, you could sit down and have friendly conversations about big issues that, that mattered to everyone. Um, and this has changed enormously. Why has it changed? And you, who is often known for being able to reach across the aisle, uh, how do you suggest we can work to solve this problem? Well, the, the good news is you're right that it appears that it's all everything's broken down. Everything has not broken down. But it appears that way. I am still able to work the way I always have, and that's to find common ground. If you can get, if you can find agreement on eighty percent of the issues, don't worry about the other twenty percent. And that's the way I operate. And we've gotten some great things done solving those problems, and we'll continue to. But it's getting harder, and the media. And I'm not. Don't take this personally, any of y'all, as a criticism. But and GPTV is not in the same category as a, a, another station or two around town. But. The media is in the business of getting viewers and selling time. And to me as a politician, I know how much it costs because I have to buy it when I run for office. <laughs> and that, and they're, they're as irresponsible in what they report sometimes as we are in what we say. And I just say that I said we and they because it's I, I'm as guilty as anybody else of making mistakes. I'm a human being. I really think we need to understand the great value we have in this Republican, the great republic, the great opportunity we have in the future to continue to be the best democracy on the face of this earth. And the only way we'll lose it is at the ballot box and in the hearts and minds of the American people. So I think what I do is important. I don't, I don't think what I do as a person is important, but it's important that as a citizen of the country that pays taxes, has worked, and has eight grandchildren and three children and lots of good friends, I'm doing my part, and if everybody do their part, we're all going to be like Noah, Noah Harris in Iraq. Yeah, but I'll go IDWIC, back. IDWIC, we're going to do what we can. I, but I want to go back to, again, talking about President Trump. Y- you wouldn't argue that President Trump has not had a role in the toxicity in Washington today, would you? I think everybody in Washington has the capability of having a role, and all of us at one time or another probably will have a role. Because, again, once we get reported on by the media, you get thrown into that category. I'm not, and I'm not blaming the media. I'm just saying that's the—we communicate. I'm here because I, I know I can commun- communicate with more people here than I can read in his newspaper. <laughs> and I'm not being critical. I'm not being critical of his newspaper. And, and GPTV is not going to have as many people watching their news as WSB is. I know that. Right. 
Right. But I also know they're both important, and, and they're going to have a much bigger effect. All you got to do is look at the television. This particular issue we talked about today has gotten all over the country. Well, you mentioned ballot box earlier. Of course, we have a big election. Don't give me any more trouble on our hands. <laughs> no, of course, we have a big election next year. Yeah. We saw how close the 2018 election yeah. was with Stacey Abrams coming within a, a razor-thin margin of, of winning the, the gubernatorial race. Um, do you think that Georgia is truly a swing state? Do you think that it is truly competitive in 2020 and it could flip for the first time since Bill Clinton uh, to, to a Democratic contender? Most of the country is competitive now. Most of the country, and Georgia certainly is more competitive than it has been in, uh, let me, I'll give you the exact number of years. Wait, just one minute. What, what, 1974. Since 1974, when we finally got competitive by electing a few Republicans, we, we were not competitive at all before 74 because we just had Democrats. Yeah, you were part of that wave. I was, I was the only guy in the state yeah. to win on that night and beat anybody for any elected office that was a yep. Democrat. Yep. That's because Jimmy Carter was at the top of the ticket. But anyway, since that time, it slowly the Republicans went up to the top, and now they're on a faster sliding board down than they were on going up, I can tell you that. But that's happening, and, it can, and that could change, but it could not change also. But Georgia's very competitive. I know uh, Stacey Abrams is a formidable candidate. David Perdue has done a great job in the Senate. It's going to be a hell of a race, heck of a race, I'm sorry. A heck of a race, uh, if that's who, that who it's between uh, next year. And good competitive races are good for us. I, I begged for people to want competition when I was running as a Republican, and Republicans were getting killed everywhere. And finally, when I won that race in 76, everybody said, well, you know, maybe he's all right. And they elected me. And since that time, they've sent me back most of the time. What do you make of the Stacey Abrams phenomenon? She's become a national phenomenon. Well, it's because every, anybody, what's his name, Bevo, the guy in Texas, what's his Beto. name? Beto. Beto. Beto O'Rourke. Bevo, Beto, whatever. The cow is Bevo. Beto is him. <laughs> no, we, <laughs> the instant, instant stardom like that and, and, and Stacey's is primarily founded in the, the, what the media likes to put on, on TV at the time. We're in an off year now. But you can't underestimate. She is a very formidable candidate for office, and she'll be tough. David Perdue has taken that to heart. He's working hard. I was with him last night at a fundraiser he had last night, which was very successful in Atlanta. So he's working hard, but it's going to be a heck of a race. It was a heck of a race and for governor last year, and uh, Brian did a good job and won, but Stacey ran a good race too. So you're going to see, a, you're going to see all the races in Georgia more competitive. And we her, got time for just a couple more yeah, questions. And her, and her main pitch, and, and, and what will probably dominate the, if she does run the, the 2020 cycle in Georgia, at least in the Senate runs, is going to be about voter rights, voter suppression. Do you think there's a legitimate problem there? Do you think that um, that, that voting issues federally and statewide uh, should be should be reevaluated to make it easier for people, not harder, to cast ballots? I, it doesn't matter what is true. It matters that it's going to be an issue because people want to ballot integrity. And they haven't been listening to all the battles over the last year and a half over whether the paper ballots are right or the computers were right or whatever. I think the legislature ought to go ahead. The Constitution puts the legislature in charge, the state legislature in charge of the elections. They should also get in charge of the ballots that are the most saleable and confidence-bearing ballots we can get and just do it. You know, it's like the Nike slogan. I'm not advertising with Nike, but just do it. It's, we're past all the campaign news and all that. And I would feel better about that, too. I, I, you, I think you can trust – I can trust paper more than I can trust a computer, and I think that's because computers are so intimidating. They're really pretty easy, but still, for somebody at 74 years old like me, I just – I get the willies. So I, I think if we can all probably sign some or check some, we'll feel better about it. And I think that's what George will end up doing. I hope they'll do it fast. You think they're going to end up with paper? I think they're heading towards computers. Well, maybe so. I, I, let's, do, <laughs> let's do two things. Yeah. Make a decision. Okay. Call the election. I, all right. Support the winner gotcha. and support our troops in the field. We are almost out of time. I got one more quick question. Throw it at you out of nowhere. All of a sudden, there are a lot of Democratic candidates, particularly, talking about eliminating the Electoral College, saying we ought to elect our presidents by popular vote, clearly looking at what happened to Al Gore in 2000, looking at George W. Bush. What do you think about whether we should be even considering eliminating the Electoral College? I believe in heaven. <laughs> and I believe in hell, and I believe you get to one or the other because of how you behave yourself, and that covers politicians, too, and politics, too. <laughs> right. So I, I'm not going to get into that any further than that. Senator Johnny Isaacson, um, it's always a pleasure. We love it that you make these occasional visits to political rewind and appreciate the fact that you uh, take the time to do it. You're right. You and I have known each other for Long decades. Time. 
And you're a good man. Your wife's well, a great lady. <laughs> a woman of the arts, I might add. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Senator Isaacson, thank you so much for uh, being with us today for Political Rewind. Great to be with you, Bill. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Thank you. And tell Galloway I read his column every day wherever you see him. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. <laughs> On the next Fresh Air, Heidi Schreck talks about writing and performing her show, What the Constitution Means to Me, which is about to open on Broadway. It's about when she was a teenager debating the Constitution in competitions sponsored by the American Legion and her later realization that the Constitution failed to protect four generations of women in her family. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. Hi, this is Bill Nygut, host of Political Rewind. I wanted to let you know that we're taking our show on the road again. On Monday evening, April 8th, we'll be on the campus of the University of Georgia in Athens. We'll record Political Rewind that night in front of a live audience, and we'd love to have you join us. For more information and to reserve a free ticket, just go to politicalrewind.org. Hope to see you in Athens on April 8th. I'm Taylor Gann, GPB's Morning Edition producer. I've had the chance to cover the full spectrum of sports in Georgia, including women's basketball, the NCAA National Championship, and Atlanta United, who won the city's first pro championship since 1995. All different people all come together in these games, and it really just represents all of Atlanta. And I think it means a lot to the entire city to have something like this. We bring you the latest on sports right here on GPB. Boeing has a crisis of trust on its hands. The worst thing that they could do would be to maintain their insistence that this plane is safe to fly. Meanwhile, that's exactly what the company's doing. Our entire team stands behind the quality and the safety of the aircraft we design, produce, and support. Boeing's reputation, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. It's 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back. Uh, Heath Garrett, you've been sitting there patiently next to Johnny Isaacson. Uh, you've worked with him for an awfully long time. You were his first, you were his chief of staff. Were you the first chief of staff when oh, he went into the U.S. Senate? I was. A uh, uh, funny, quick story. I was president of the student body at the University of Georgia, started working with him and students for Isaacson, hmm. and then went with him to the State Board of Education, chief of staff in the U.S. House, and then chief of staff in the Senate. So... We've been together for a long time. So Senator Isaacson um, was very careful in how in his criticism of the president. He kept it. It was kind of like a Supreme Court decision <laughs> where you want to be careful you don't overstep. Uh, he was very narrow in in, in his criticism, speaking specifically about John McCain, um, and yet. There were little hints here and there that he is not thrilled with the tone of President Trump's uh, uh, entire, you know, the way he speaks in general. And I'm not asking you to put words in his mouth, but sure. how difficult is it for a Johnny Isaacson or other Republicans on the Hill? He went further than most of his colleagues, at mm -hmm. least. Right. But how tough is it for them up there? The, the one thing you hear, and Johnny Isaacson is not one who said this, when you talk to members of Congress— and you say to them, what do you think of President Trump? The first thing they say is, are we off the record? Right. Well, I think, Bill, you've got the members of the House and the Senate, particularly on the Republican side, that I think divide up into two or three camps. You do have a number, particularly of House members, who've come in since 2010 who actually applaud and support the Trump style, right, whether it's with the Tea Party or whether it's – they feel like Washington is – politically, morally, philosophically opposed to them and their communities, and they're there to either, you know, not destroy Washington, but to really fight government all the time. That's about a third of the members, in my opinion. You have about a third who are just there trying to do the best for their constituents, and they really don't want to get caught up in all of the 
the, the sensitivities in the hyper-political environment. Uh, and then you have about a third who have achieved the status of being able to push back against their own party, against their own president at times, and stand up. And, I mean, Johnny's definitely in that. I mean, there's no question. Like Johnny Isaacson's was quoted in the AJC and in the Wall Street Journal recently as maybe one of the last great American statesmen because of his personality, his style, uh, the fact that he does use fewer words. He's not always trying to get in the middle of the latest fight. Uh, he uses that to the advantage for policy purposes and to get things done. He passed two pieces of legislation last year with almost unanimous bipartisan mm -hmm. support, the greatest reform of the Veterans Affairs Committee, I mean, in, in, in 30 or 40 years in the most hyper-political environment. So there's no doubt that the styles of President Trump and a Johnny Isaacson are, couldn't be more diametrically opposed, yet Johnny doesn't like to speak ill of anyone. He does. That's just his style, yeah. and so he's very measured. And, and there's a political part of this, too, right? All these folks are, are pressured by the reality that the president of the United States is as popular or more popular than Ronald Reagan ever was in the within, his within, party. within the party. Yeah. And, and he is a Republican, and these are his friends, right? And so that's the measure he, he everybody has to take into consideration. And that's why I think the senator's— um uh, unnerved by some of the headlines that say slam and attack yeah, and blast he, he, because he, that's, he, that's not really him. But you have seen in 2016 when he ran against Jim Barksdale and right. reporters like me were asking him, Trump was on the ballot obviously, and reporters like me were asking him, what do you make of Trump's latest tweet? He really got v visibly frustrated and said, I'm not going to talk about this tweet. I'm on the ballot for me. If I say something stupid, it's on me. If someone else says something stupid, it's not on them. He's kind of changed though. In the last couple years, I mean, not a lot, but th there's four times by our count where he has criticized the president. One was his Haitian, his comments about Haiti and third world countries. One time it was over Charlottesville and obviously with the Senator McCain issues. Um, so he, he has shown a more of a willingness. But when he does, as you mentioned, he walks that line because he also needs the president's support on some very big bills coming. I'm not saying that's why. Right. But he does, in fact, need the president's Greg, support. Greg, you and I have Michael. covered Isaacson, as we've covered a lot of Georgia political uh, elected officials over many, many years, and you, you, there's no question that it's got to be a, it's got to be heartbreaking for a Johnny Isaacson. You may not agree with every vote that Johnny Isaacson right. takes. You may not agree with his political philosophy, but but the reality is he has always been a very decent human being as a politician, it's got to break his heart, as it does others in there, to see some of the stuff that comes out of uh, the president's Twitter account, out of his mouth. And, uh, and yet, he wants to accomplish things for the state of Georgia. <laughs> yeah, and, and some big things, right? I mean, there's we were talking about Hurricane Michael. Yeah. It's been, what, since October now, and uh, the, the, the farmers have not gotten mm. any federal relief yet. And the state has made this, Brian Kemp has made this one of his top priorities as well. And, and we were talking a little bit before we went on about how surprisingly a heavy lift this has been for something that seemed like everyone was on the same page. Well, you know, it's a lot harder than thought. So he, he does need to kind of navigate that, well, and, that tricky balance. And there. this is a good example. And you heard a little bit of it, but he's the only member of the United States Senate who can actually get Nancy Pelosi on the phone and cause her to alter her trajectory on a political issue and the president of the United States, Donald Trump. And that is a wide bridge, <laughs> right. right? But his style and skill is what's going to make that happen where – it's difficult for other people to well, do that. We're always glad when uh, Senator Isaacson stops by to visit with us. Let's uh, change to a couple other subjects while we still have some time on the show. Uh, Heath Garrett, you're a Cobb County man. Yes, you sir. feel like you dodged a bullet that you don't have to deal with transit quite yet? That Gwinnett Marta referendum, it went down hard. Eight points? I think that's wow. a, uh, you know, I, I had heard rumors of some internal polling on both sides that showed that it could have been worse, actually. It uh, started out worse. Um, there's no question that it's a it's a shot across the bow. I don't think it's it's, uh, it's defeating it over the long haul. I remember when the first education splots, you know, came around in the early 90s, Cobb County defeated one. I think Gwinnett did. A number of counties defeated them. And then they came back with a slightly better project list 
a couple of years later. Uh, they figured out the politics of it. They made it more inclusive. So, uh, but yes, look, there's no question that Cobb County and other metro counties that were thinking about it are having to, to reconsider what their plans are. I think that we have to figure out how are we going to talk about mobility uh, rather than just MARTA and, and transit because words now have taken on meanings that are far beyond. There wasn't that much heavy rail in this package, but right. it, it was defined by MARTA and heavy rail. There are a lot of, and, and, and look, it's good, but if this had been on the general election ballot and not on the spe yeah. special election ballot, I think we would have had a different outcome. And I think we'll test that theory, but we got to, we got to, everybody's got to get better about their lists and the politics of, you can't, you can't take the politics out of politics. Let's put it in this context. 92,000 people voted um, either earlier or last or, or yesterday on election day for, for this referendum. Um, compare that to 330-ish thousand people who voted in November in Gwinnett County. Um, so there's a tremendous gap there, even though the 92,000 was far above runoff and primary and, and off-cycle type voting that usually in Gwinnett, it was still far fewer turnout than usual. And of course, Demo Gwinnett is now a Democratic county. Stacey Abrams won that county by 57% of the vote. Hillary Clinton won that county three years ago. So the the, the demographics and, and the political uh, background of that of that county has drastically changed. So I think lesson one is an obvious lesson for any transit advocates. They have to get these referendums on the November ballot because these special elections with low turnout aren't, aren't going to do it. And we've got a lot of science behind that. We were involved in the rural T-splosts when there were 11 of those a few years ago. We, we were not involved in the Atlanta one. but That uh, was the, the statewide. statewide. Those were The state was divided into regions That's right. where uh, voters could go to the polls and decide on paying for a tax for, for some transportation initiatives just in their region. Now, that, go that's ahead. right. And three of them passed. The right. ones far, the kind of farthest away from Atlanta, uh, there were five of them that were on the verge of these were. This was a special election. The data was clear. If you had a general election population, we would have passed maybe eight or nine of them. Um, and but it was also fascinating. Uh, there were several regions outside of Atlanta that were winning in our polling data until Atlanta went up on television and started talking about transit. And within. 48 hours of that advertising about transit, all the regions around Atlanta that were watching Atlanta television tanked. Wow. And so they're, they're just, they're words and there's language that matters in these things. And I think we've got to get over to what does mobility look like in the 21st century? It's a lot of Uber. It's a lot of Lyft. It's a lot of driverless technology. It's a lot of other things. It's not just heavy rail. And that's, but we've, the, 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 the politicians here may be a little bit ahead of the people in some respects. Greg, the uh, the quote from Charlotte Nash is, uh, we're going to get this on the ballot again as soon as possible. Her, and I was about to mention that, her and every Democratic supporter of this, too. So there's a there's a bipartisan consensus among the supporters. This is not going anywhere. Um, and I don't think it is. I think it's coming right back. It could be 2022. I don't know if it will be 2020, but it could be 2022. Um, where you know, And you could have new county leadership by then as well. Um, we're not sure who will be the Gwinnett next Gwinnett County chairwoman. Um, there's, there's, but when you have so much support across both party aisles, you had Stacey Abrams and former Governor Nathan Deal both backing the same initiative. It shows you uh, where these trends are going. All right. I want to get to another issue, uh, a legislative issue this time. Uh, Greg Bluestein, we thought because Speaker of the House, David Ralston, has said over and over again, I don't see any uh, justification right now for why the state should take over Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. We thought, well, maybe that's the end of that. And there's a maneuver that has come up in the last 24 hours that may put this right back front and center. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate. There was a Senate um, committee meeting just a few hours ago uh, where there's talk about attaching the airport takeover bill to the effort uh, to suspend Delta's jet fuel tax in the long run. Um, and at the same time, as this legislation is moving through, it looks like uh, one version of it actually raised, ended up raising uh, Delta's, uh, the, the airline jet fuel tax as well. So there's some shenanigans going on. We're not wow. sure if they'll stick. We're not sure how, how much juice they have behind them. Um, but What's clear, and we've known this for at least the last year or so, is that lawmakers no longer are deferential to Delta, even though it's the state's largest private employer. We saw that last year with the NRA uh, flap, and we're seeing it again this year. Um, they're not just going to uh, vote on something just because Delta is putting its heft behind it.
No, I think they're they're not getting an easy pass, and that's kind of the modern era. I think the the, the base in both parties, as we know, have become a little bit antithetical to what we've always known as economic development. Uh, world around uh, the state economy in Georgia. It used to be very bipartisan. They've had to do with the ports. If it had to do with Coca-Cola, Delta, any of these major employers, right, there was a tremendous amount of deference to it. I think, particularly the, and I'm a, as a Republican, I think people in our party need to stop and pause and remember we're the party of private sector businesses. We're the party who recognizes that's where liberty comes from. And we have the largest employer or one of the largest employers, not only in the state, but in the South. Uh, we need to continue to, to recognize that that they are extremely important to our economy. The entire state, uh, every county benefits from Delta being based in Atlanta, Georgia, and 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 we and I think that both parties need to figure out what's the right thing and not use them as a political football. Well, that's what I was going to say. Look, I mean, I'm certainly not here to be an advocate for a major corporation getting yeah, tax right. breaks one way or the other. But if you're the lobbyists for Delta Airlines, and we, I think, all know who they are, you are really earning your pay and have been for the last few sessions because every time you turn around, somebody is trying to use that jet fuel tax break uh, against uh, against you in one way or another. <laughs> well, no, I just, I, I've seen some interesting data over the last couple of years. Uh, the the majority of primary voters for Democrats and the majority of primary voters for Republicans don't like big business and they don't like Washington. And so that's a unique combination. And then Delta and Coca-Cola and others get caught up in that just as much as the anti-Washington fervor used to be. So it's an interesting political dynamic. I've got another one. I haven't even had a chance to do a read. I haven't been able to read through this, Greg, and maybe you're aware of it. Ty Tagami of your staff, one of your colleagues at the AJC, has just posted an item on the Political Insider blog where you post stories as well. Private K through 12 scholarships are back in the Georgia legislature. We thought that that bill, which was going to allow the state to divert funding from public education uh, 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 monies to scholarships for kids who want to go to private schools, was dead. And, of course, no bill is dead until it's dead. That's why we call them zombie bills are mostly dead. Um, And this, by the way, we can talk about this a little bit. That's not the only dead bill that came back to life today. Um, But I asked Governor Kemp about this the other day and whether or not he'd support a revival of this legislation, which is, you know, referred to by critics as as basically a voucher bill. He said, look, um, when you usually there wouldn't be an appetite for this, but the last two years now, the public school system, the K through 12 system has gotten full funding through the QBE formula where it hasn't had in years past. So he says, he's not saying he supports it yet, but he's also saying there's less of a, a reason to criticize it because the, the K through 12 system is getting the full funding. Now the ed- public education system has fought a very vigorous battle about it and picked off some, a lot of Republicans and many Democrats who oppose it. Um, so it remains to be seen. It failed. It's not like it got very, very far. I mean, it failed in the Senate and hasn't reached a House vote um, in, in the last few years. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. This could be a test of how far um, the House is willing to go on this. All right. Uh, we'll watch how th- that unfolds um, in the days that are remaining. We're tomorrow they're in recess today. Tomorrow they're back for day, I think, 34. They're supposed to end on Tuesday, April 2nd, if I got that right. You got it. And they're expected to vote on the abortion bill, the, the Friday? legislation on Friday. In the Senate. And one other bill that has come roaring back is the Certificate of Need bill. Um, we just reported a few minutes ago that Governor Kemp is putting his 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 endorsement behind a version of the Certificate of Need bill that, pa- that passed a House committee. And he's saying that if lawmakers don't reach a compromise, he will he's threatening to take executive action to make the changes on Certificate of Need, wow. which, which uh, guides how hospitals are regulated in Georgia okay. himself. All right. Wow. Uh, let, we've only got time for one more subject. You got in the car yesterday. You decided to go to Nashville which is one of my favorite cities to visit, so good for you, because you wanted to see Stacey Abrams outside of Georgia. You've covered her entire campaign. You were with her every step of the way. So tell us about her appearance in Nashville and uh, what what your impressions were. Yeah, I've seen her all over Georgia, of course. I've been to every stop of her, or most stops of her thank you tour. And of those, she's not having to introduce herself to voters. Everyone in Georgia knows who she is by now. Um, this was about 500, 600 people in a, a Vanderbilt University auditorium. And she was introducing, they had heard of her, they had read about her, but she was largely introducing herself to, to a bigger audience. And I was, 
I guess not surprised, but it was it was interesting seeing a packed house. I mean, people lined up for an hour plus before to see Stacey Abrams. She got standing ovations. Uh, you could you could see for yourself the national figure she's become. Um, she spoke a lot about the her, her race for governor. Um, one of the things that really stood out to two things that stood out to me. She said she said she talked about how despondent and depressed she was after she lost. I mean, in really, you know, uh, naked terms, uh, personal terms, but she said, revenge offers its own catharsis. So again, if you're reading the tea leaves, um, you know, you could, you could suggest that maybe she's looking more at 2022 than 2020. Who knows? She didn't give any news on that. The other thing she said is that she's been taking meetings with every presidential candidate. Yeah. Hickenlooper, he's former in tonight. Colorado governor, yeah. John Hickenlooper's here tonight and she's having dinner with him before his CNN town hall meeting. So he's the latest, but she said she's asking them two things. Um, one, asking them their plan to, to target voter suppression and voting rights issues. And secondly, ask them if they, if they truly believe that Georgia is a battleground state. And if they don't have good answers on either of them, she's not meeting with them. Uh, you told readers that uh, she said, I am not playing nice guy politics. I, she didn't use that term, but essentially said, you're supposed to concede graciously, grateful. I would not do that because I think basically the election was taken from me. Right? Yeah, she said she's not going to play the genteel yeah, um, that's, runner that's up. The word. Right. Um, Heath, they're still talking. You know, now we're hearing this talk. We've talked about this in, in a general way. Now there's talk that if Biden jumps into the race, he may want to pick a vice presidential running mate quickly. Uh, and you've got to think Stacey Abrams would be high on that list. Well, look, you know, I, I like Stacey Abrams. She's she's a professional friend of mine. I disagree with her philosophically and politically on a whole lot. I want to note that you did have to go to Nashville to really find her, but I'm just kidding. I know here come the Facebook tweets. The uh, No, no, the, I've the, said that myself. Yeah, I mean, um, if she's planning to run for a Georgia office, at a certain point, it feels to me, too, like she's got to get back and talk to her voters here. here. But but I was just going to be a compliment for her. If I were going to pick the two individuals that create the greatest amount of enthusiasm nationally, I would put Beto and Stacey Abrams together on a ticket because of the enthusiasm from, from the voters wow. and the combination of that. So there's no question she's going to be on Joe Biden's short list of quick folks to look at there. And uh, I think that she is interviewing these folks, learning from them, and maybe doing a little uh, opposition research with these interviews and taking advantage of that power where she is. So... Um, the national tour and, the, and actually international because she was in England not yeah. that long ago has come up a lot and and this is what I this is what she said last night about it actually um, and we've heard this before a little bit but last year she didn't sell that many books she had a, a memoir slash sort of self help guide um, that came out um, at the end of at the beginning of last year end of seventeen and she was campaigning and every single time that she tried to go to a book event um, her opponents and the media rightly you know me uh, would point out that she was in New York or wherever um, and Stacey. Evans campaign made hate of it. So she had to cancel all that. And so what she said last night was she used the word no one. She said, nobody bought my book. And so now she does have that opportunity um, to do that. So, you know, whether or not that's the right answer, that is that is her explanation of why she's doing these national tours. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think there's any, you know, good for her. She wants to go out and sell some books. She's a big, a big deal right now she for is. many people. So we'll watch and see when she does come home what she has to say about what office she seeks next. Okay, that's it for us uh, for today's show. Heath Garrett, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, Greg, always a pleasure to have you. Heath, you're back with us on your in your usual Monday time slot next week. We're looking forward to cool seeing that. you then. Greg, you're back with us on Wednesday. Friday, uh, we've got a really interesting show. I've mentioned a couple of times it's U.S. Senator Week on Political Rewind. We had Johnny Isaacson today. On Friday, Alabama Senator Doug Jones will be joining us. He's going to be running again in 2021. Remember, he was the first Democrat to be elected in the state of Alabama in more than two decades. Roy Moore was his Republican opponent. Roy Moore may be coming back to take him on again in 2021. We'll watch how that unfolds. So join us for Friday's Political Rewind for uh, our conversation with uh, Alabama Senator Doug Jones. I'm Bill Vigott. See you all again Friday at 2 o'clock. <laughs>